This is a talk by Joel titled Depression and the Dark Night, recorded November 11, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, uh, this was a question in the question box. Good example of it, and an excellent question. Dear Joel, could you please discuss the relationship between depression and the dark night of the soul? Is there an observable difference? This article, A Hell of Mercy, brings up some fascinating points, but it leaves us wondering if Farrington really reached the state of no self. This is an article that accompanied uh, their question, A Hell of Mercy, and I don't know, where did you guys get this? It comes from the Sun magazine. I'm not going to really refer to this during the course of the talk, but if you're interested, you can talk to Mary Song on their show about it. It's actually quite an interesting article of someone who had a, a, an experience of uh, deep depression, deep dark nights, and himself was sometimes confused about what was going on. So this is what this is referring to. What if St. John of the Cross could have taken a mood-altering drug? If it had been available, should he have taken it? Are people who take antidepressants and mood-altering drugs missing something valuable for their spiritual paths? How do you know if a depression, which can be treated by a chemical, i.e. a chemical imbalance, should be left alone or treated? Mary Song and Nirsha. So this is an excellent question. How many of you here have ever experienced depression? <laughs> Look around. Good. I think it's quite common, especially in our culture. So, uh, this is what we will try to take up today. What is the relationship between depression and the dark night of the soul? Now, let me begin with a little preamble here, because when we are using these two terms, we are actually drawing from two different worldviews or paradigms. Depression is a term that's used by modern medicine, which is based on a materialist worldview. And the dark night of the soul is a term that comes from a mystical path and is based on a mystical worldview. So, and these worldviews are incompatible. Uh, they don't necessarily integrate. And particularly when it comes to what is called in modern philosophy the mind-body problem. How much does the body influence the mind or the mind influence the body and so forth. Of course, in the materialist paradigm, the materialist worldview, there is no mind, basically. Mind is just an epiphenomenon of the body, so everything reduces to physical causes and effects. And that means, by the way, that happiness can only be physical. There's no such thing as a spiritual happiness or anything. It's just if the body gets what it needs and if the mind, the brain, gets what it needs in the way of emotional support and so forth, then that is, by definition, happiness. Uh, from a mystical point of view, of course, this is a very flat way of experiencing the cosmos, and mystics insist there's a whole other dimension to the cosmos, a spiritual dimension, and that ultimately happiness lies in that spiritual dimension. And in the absence of any adequate modern paradigm that really uh, can explain both the successes of science but incorporates the fundamental truths of mysticism, we don't really have a, a good way of talking about these two things in an integrated way. So I'm saying this uh, up front to let you know that our discussion is going to be provisional and relative. In other words, I'm, uh, I'm having to use terms from both 
kinds of, of worldviews. And hopefully, in the future, there will be an adequate paradigm where we can understand these things better, better meaning in a more consistent fashion. But in the meantime, perhaps it'll be useful, especially if you are someone who has experienced depression and or dark nights. So, having said that, let us go on. What is depression, according to materialist worldview? <coughs> now, I got on the internet and I found this group called DRADA, D-R-A-D-A. It's Depression and Related Affective Disorders Association. And they are organized under the auspices of John Hopkins University, the medical school at John Hopkins, which is one of the most renowned medical schools in the country. So this is the, the classic establishment view of depression. And they list three kinds of depression. Chronic, unipolar, and bipolar. So let me just read you very quickly from their literature how they describe these various kinds of depression. So first, uh, depression in general. What are the symptoms? The symptoms of depression include persistent sad mood, loss of interest or pleasure in activities that were once enjoyed, change in appetite or weight, difficulty sleeping or oversleeping, physical slowing or agitation, energy loss, feelings of worthlessness or inappropriate guilt, difficulty thinking or concentrating, and recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. A diagnosis of unipolar major depression or major depressive disorder is made if a person has five or more of these symptoms and impairment in usual functioning nearly every day during the same two-week period. And then uh, it says this affects uh, approximately 5.3% of American adults age 18 to 54. Then there is a chronic depression. Some people have a chronic but less severe form of depression called dysthemia. That is diagnosed when depressed mood persists for at least two years and is accompanied by at least two other symptoms of depression. And an estimated 1.6% of American adults age 18, 54 suffer from this. And then it says, uh, while unipolar depression and diasthemia are the primary forms of depression, a variety of other subtypes exist. So this is unipolar depression and chronic depression, uh, this uh, diasthemia. What? Dysthymia. Dysthymia, thank you. See, I, I read these things. I have no idea how to pronounce them. <laughs> then there's bipolar depression, which is considered the uh, most severe form, and that is depression. It's unipolar depression with all those symptoms of persistent sad mood, uh, losing interest in normal pleasures, uh, physical slowing or agitation, feelings of worthlessness, and uh, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. Periods of this kind of depression then alternate with moods of mania, episodes of mania. And this is the way they describe it. Abnormally and persistent elevated high mood or irritability accompanied by at least three of the following symptoms. Overly inflated self-esteem, decreased need for sleep, increased talkativeness, racing thoughts, distractibility, goal-directed activity done to excess, such as spending money, physical agitation, and excessive involvement in risky behaviors. Uh, episodes of hypomania or mild mania include symptoms such as increased energy, elevated mood, irritability, and intrusiveness, which may cause little 
uh, impairment in functioning but are noticeable to others. So these are the classic descriptions of depression. It's interesting because they do say that they don't know really, uh, they have not been able to pinpoint or isolate any specific physical basis for this, unlike some other kinds of diseases. So they don't uh, have a genetic lead on it, although they suspect it can be genetically based because it tends to run in families and so forth. And they uh, have drugs that will treat it, but they don't really know how they work in the brain. So the materialist worldview of depression really knows not very much about it at this point in time anyway. Okay, so then what are dark nights of the soul? And as I said earlier, this expression was coined by St. John of the Cross, a 17th century Christian mystic from Spain, and he distinguishes two types of dark nights. One he calls the dark night of the senses, which affects the sensory part of the soul, which is the part that is the appetite of soul, the, the part of the soul that takes pleasure in worldly things, worldly pursuits. And then the dark night of the spirit, or sometimes he calls it the contemplative dark night, which affects the spiritual part of the soul, which takes pleasure in spiritual things. So notice already, because we're in a different worldview, this isn't even recognized in materialist worldview, this kind of distinction here. But certainly the first kind of dark night of the senses is very much like what is described here for unipolar or chronic depression. Here's what John of the Cross writes about the dark night of the senses. We are using the expression in night to signify a deprival of the gratification of the soul's appetites in all things. When the appetites are extinguished, one no longer feeds on the pleasures of these things but lives in a void and a darkness with respect to the appetites. So in other words, you lose interest in things like eating and uh, going to parties, watching TV, movies, all those, from a spiritual point of view, worldly pursuits. And then he describes the dark night of the spirit as a loss of interest in those spiritual pursuits, which happens when the spiritual consolations that come from pursuing spiritual practices dry up. So he goes on to say, God leaves the intellect in darkness, the will in aridity, the memory in emptiness, and the affections in supreme affliction, bitterness, and anguish by depriving the soul of the feeling of satisfaction it previously obtained from spiritual blessings. Now, notice it's very interesting. You, in a certain sense, have to be on a spiritual path, or at least you have to have some spiritual experiences in order to experience a dark night of the spirit. If you don't know anything about spiritual blessings or consolations and so forth, then you won't miss them. You won't feel their absence. So again, you see we're into two different worldviews. There's nothing mentioned in the literature that I read about spiritual dark nights. So then, what is the relationship between these? Depression and the dark night. And I think we should begin by recognizing that the, some of the worst case bipolar and unipolar forms of depression may indeed be heavily genetically or chemically based. But it in itself does not have any particular spiritual significance. Uh, I had a friend who fit this description. He was a guy I knew in Hollywood and he would go through these periods of mania and then deep depression and they would be unrelated to anything that was going on in his life as far as he or anybody else could determine. 
And they were quite extreme. I mean, he thought he was going to be made president of the Hollywood studio. He was a reader, which is about the lowest you can be on the, on the ladder. And as an amateur, to me, it looked like it was something really going on chemically. So let us uh, put worst cases of particularly bipolar, but also unipolar depression aside for a moment. Let's assume the materialists are right, that these things are just totally controlled by chemicals and whatnot and that they should be treated as best you can with modern medicines and drugs and so forth. But then we have the whole range, which most people experience, of depression. It can be quite severe depression that is described by the modern medical literature and also by St. John of the Cross. And they're very similar. This loss of interest in worldly things and worldly affairs. So what are the similarities and differences here? In terms of the ideational and emotional content of both depression and dark nights, they are actually very similar. I'm not talking about any underlying uh, chemical basis or whatever, but what's going on in the person's mind. They are a reaction to what the Buddha called his first noble truth, and that is life in delusion, lived in delusion, is suffering. That's the Buddha's first noble truth. The first thing we have to understand, life as we live it now is suffering. There is no permanent happiness to be found in worldly life. It is suffering in many ways. It is suffering, first of all, because it ends in old age, sickness, and death, inescapably. So whatever happiness we do manage to get a hold of during the course of our life, it's all going to be taken away from us at death anyway. <coughs> And then if we really watch our lives uh, closely, we see that it's suffering because all the things we want, that we grasp onto, that we try to hold, accumulate, and so forth, are all ephemeral and impermanent. So we're constantly trying to hang on to things that don't last, and we, we try to hang on to them. We do get some pleasure out of them, some joy out of them. The Buddha's not denying that we don't experience pleasure and joy. He's saying, but all these things, these pleasures and joys, are transitory. They can't last. And when we get them and we become attached to them, we set ourselves up for suffering. So we're constantly setting ourselves up for suffering. And if we watch our lives carefully, we see that there's always this discontent running through our lives. This syndrome then gives rise to worries, fears, insecurities, expectations, and the whole mass of misery of suffering, what Zorba called the full catastrophe. So this fundamental truth, the Buddha's first noble truth, is also a truth recognized in other traditions. For instance, uh, Jesus said, don't store up your treasures uh, here on earth where moths will eat them and rust will corrupt them. Store up your treasures in heaven. That's where you'll find lasting happiness. There's no lasting happiness uh, in these worldly treasures. Here's what the great Hindu saint Mirabai said. She was a great bhakti of uh, India. Worldly comfort is an illusion. As soon as you get it, it goes. Take no pride in the body. It will soon mingle with dust. This life is like the sporting of sparrows. It will end with the onset of night. So, materialists view depression as an overreaction to this truth. I mean, they don't deny the truth that we're all going to get sick and get old and die. But they say, well, you know, you're overreacting. Uh, yes, all that's true, but what can you do about it? So don't be morbid. You know, get on with your life and get as much happiness as you can. Make the best of things. And if you are getting stuck in this morbid dwelling on the fact that you're going to get old and die and there's so much suffering in the world and all that, well, here, we'll give you a drug 
uh, that'll make you stop thinking about it so much. And that's what these drugs do. They free up the mind and uh, you stop dwelling on the Buddha's first noble truth. But that's really the only uh, basic treatment. They also uh, recommend uh, some kinds of therapy that was mentioned at least in this. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy was one. But the fundamental approach of materialism is that, well, there's just nothing we can do about this. So let's just be as happy as we can. That is the underlying theme, if you like, or the, the assumption of their form of treatment. Mystics, on the other hand, see the dark night as signaling a profound insight, or at least the beginning of a profound insight into the Buddha's first noble truth. They say, yes, you see, at last you're getting it. Yeah, you're beginning to understand it's really true. Life is suffering. It's really true. You are going to get old and you're going to get sick and you're going to die. It's really true that all the things you want and become attached to are impermanent and you're going to lose them. It's really true that the way you've been leading your life is futile. So no wonder you're suffering. So this is why the dark night of the senses is actually a, uh, uh, it's not an overreaction, it is a legitimate reaction to realizing that this truth is the truth of this world. So we begin to lose interest in things. You know, when you see that your behavior is futile, most people stop doing it. So, in mystical paths, this is celebrated as a big step on the path. So let's look at these two kinds of dark nights, because each one represents a different step. First one step, and then another step. Here's what St. John of the Cross says about the dark night of the senses in terms of its spiritual significance. The necessity for passing through this dark night, that is, the denial of pleasure in all things, for the attainment of the divine union with God arises from the fact that all of a person's attachments to creatures are pure darkness in God's sight. Clothed in these affections, people will be incapable of the enlightenment and dominating fullness of God's pure and simple light. So as long as we are attached to uh, worldly things, as long as we are pursuing them, as long as we think happiness lies in that direction, that is an obstacle to us realizing where the source of true happiness lies which comes from the spiritual dimension of the cosmos from a mystical point of view. And John of the Cross talks about it in terms of God, because he's a Christian. A Buddhist would talk about it in terms of Buddha nature. A Taoist would talk about it in terms of the Tao. It doesn't matter. It's that ultimate, unnameable reality that is the basis of all these manifestations, these transitory manifestations that come and go. So he's saying it's necessary that we have this realization of the futility of pursuing these things so that we will stop doing it because we're barking at the wrong tree and as long as you're barking at the wrong tree you won't be barking at the right tree. And so the dark night brings about a detachment from worldly pursuits. And I think this is important because a lot of people say, oh well, I'm not attached to these things but I continue to do them anyway because you know I've got responsibilities and whatnot. And if you are a household in the world, you do have responsibilities to continue the life of a householder. This is nothing about giving up your responsibilities or dropping out of the world externally. But there's a big difference of really having a genuine heartfelt insight 
that pursuing happiness in the world is futile and pretending that you're not attached to all these things. And this is why, uh, many times on the spiritual path, disasters that befall us are considered good things because they show us where attachments are. Do you know what I mean? So I wasn't attached to that little wine glass that my Aunt Tilly gave me, that you know, beautiful little crystal glass, until it breaks. And then you find out you are attached to it. But if we give up our motive for acting in the world based on self-interest, grasping, acquisition, and so forth, then we can find another selfless motive for acting in the world, which we'll get to here a little bit later. So we're not talking about giving up action in the world, but we are talking about realizing that if we are acting in the world in order to become happy, that this is not going to work. Here's how Simone Weil, uh, she was a great Christian mystic of the last century, uh, here's how she describes it. We all know that everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, and wears out. Every human being has probably had some lucid moments in his life when he has definitely acknowledged to himself that there is no final good here below. But as soon as we have seen this truth, we cover it up with lies. Men feel that there is a mortal danger in facing this truth for any length of time. And that is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. And in order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. Those who do this turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls. So, and this is, again, what happened to Buddha. The old legend of Buddha is, he was a young prince, grew up in a very wealthy, powerful family, surrounded by all the worldly luxuries of life, and never ventured out of his castle, because his father was overprotective. But eventually he did get out, and he went out on several trips, and what he saw was, first, a, a sick person. He was horrified, because in his castle they never let him be exposed to sickness. And then he saw an old person, and he was horrified by that. And he had a charioteer, he'd ask the charioteer, what's going on here? And the charioteer said, well, this happens to everybody. And then finally they saw a corpse, and he was really horrified, and the charioteer says, well, that's, you know, that's everybody's fate. And then the Buddha came back to his worldly life, and he couldn't enjoy it anymore. He was in a dark night of the senses. How could he go about pretending that he enjoyed all those things, knowing that they were all transitory, that they were all impermanent, this was the end of all life? So that is what motivated him to go out on a spiritual path, to seek enlightenment. Is there a solution to this suffering? Is there some sort of permanent, lasting, abiding happiness? So this little dark night of the senses he went through was extremely important. That's what got him out of his princely palace. That's what got him on the path. That's what got him searching. So even if you don't leave your worldly home physically, what's going on in your heart and mind? So really, what, uh, from a mystic's point of view, the dark night of the senses is a step on the path to spiritual maturity. And I think it was Paul who said it beautifully, St. Paul, who said, you know, when I was a child, I spake as a child, and now that I'm a man, I put away childish things. So in a spiritual terms, we put away a search for happiness in the world, and we begin to search for happiness where there is at least the possibility that we might be able to find it. So, uh, then the question is, supposing you are experiencing a dark night of the senses, what can you do? If you're experiencing a depression, you can go to the doctor and you can get um, 
you know, Prozac or one of these other things. Uh, but what do uh, mystics say? Do they have any recommendations? Do you just sit there and sort of bear it or whatnot? And some people have spontaneously gone through this and not had any advice or help and had to just sit there and bear it. But there, in fact, are things you can do. And the first thing is change the priorities of your life. It ain't working. That's what this depression, that's what this dark night is telling you. It ain't working. So change the priorities of your life. Don't just try to muscle your way through in the old way. Find a new way. The second thing you can do is to take up spiritual practices. Now, you might be so overwhelmed by your dark night that you cannot take up spiritual practices. You might be so agitated. You might be so depressed. You might have so little energy. You're just not even interested in spiritual practices or doing anything. In that case, I personally think it's a good idea to go to the doctor and to get some Prozac and get some help. And I think we can make use of modern medicine, you know, mystics. We're not against modern medicine at all. We're just against the, the dead-end view that's usually behind it. Make use of it till you get to the point where you are back on a more even keel and you can take up spiritual practices. I look at it this way as a little bit like um, I had gallbladder surgery you know, a number of years ago and my uh, bladder had gotten infected. So before they performed the surgery, they fed me a lot of antibiotics to bring down the infection. So you could look at using antidepressants uh, in just that way. You know, before you uh, start on a spiritual path, you use them. The danger is, and this is what I think we want to be aware of, is that once you get on antidepressants, you start feeling better, and you forget the import of the insight that produced the dark night in the first place. Do you see what I mean? But if you want to make use of the insight here, then don't forget. Don't forget what motivated that dark night. And then use your new stability in life then to, to take up spiritual practices. What kind of spiritual practices and what do they do? And I just can mention them briefly here. Practices of inquiry uh, and meditation dispel the dark night by allowing you to see your own thought processes as they're occurring and to see that they are literally imaginary. They're images in the mind. They're flowing through thoughts, images, all that chit-chat that flows through the mind, and they are autonomous. Your control over them is very slight. You can stop them for a moment, and sometimes you can start to think about something else, but once they get going, they take off. They have a mind of their own. And this morning, when we were doing this little simple meditation practice of watching the breath, this is an excellent practice for beginning to see that because if you're trying to focus on the breath, you, you see how powerful your mind is. But you also see in that space, that gap, you see the difference between the, just the awareness and the thoughts going through. And that space and that distance creates detachment from your own thought processes. And the detachment means that you aren't necessarily in those thoughts and those thoughts aren't even necessarily true. And you can watch them arise and dissolve, arise and dissolve, and that gives you some spaciousness, some distance from them. And what happens in the depression or a dark night is, of course, we get caught up in our own thoughts and we start believing them. I used to have, before I was on a spiritual path, I used to go through periods of what I used to call black moods. 
and I just assumed that they were, you know, some sort of rhythmic thing. And they were pretty rhythmic a couple times a year. I'd go through maybe a, a few weeks or a month of these black moods. And while I was uh, researching this talk, I was trying to remember back, because that was quite a while ago. But I, I do remember at least once, I was in San Francisco, I was in my early 20s. I was at a party on a houseboat in Sausalito, and I found one of these black moods coming on. And I remember this quite clearly, although I don't remember the line. I was wondering, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then somebody said something, just offhand, but it was a little bit of a slight, you know? And I thought, oh, I see. Everybody hates me. I mean, nobody, I mean, I, you know. <laughs> and I, I was living in San Francisco, I, if you know the area. I left the houseboat in Sausalitos across the, the Golden Gate Bridge. In the middle of the night, I walked home, like three hours. I just... And my mind was just going on on this trip about how worthless I was. Now, uh, I had the same, uh, a similar experience after I was on a spiritual path, and I had been doing some meditation, and I had been watching thought, and I knew that this ego that this thought created was the enemy, so to speak. I mean, I knew that the whole idea of the spiritual path was to see that that isn't who you are. And so at the period, at that time, I was going through a breakup with my second wife, and I was the one who initiated, and I felt all this guilt, and she really took it badly. And I was going through these really dark moods of self-pity and so forth and so on. And I found myself, and I remember this very clearly, I think I wrote about it in my book, where I was, uh, you know, blaming myself for just wrecking her life. I mean, I was totally responsible for all her misery. And then for wrecking my parents' lives because, you know, they had all these expectations of me and it wasn't working out. And, then, and as I'm doing this, I'm also now able to watch my thoughts and I'm saying, hey, you know, this is kind of uh, egotistical here. I mean, you know, it's sort of a negative uh, story of I. You know, are you responsible for all these people's happiness, you know? I said, well, what about the rest of the world? You know, that's right, I'm responsible for all the sickness in the world because I don't contribute enough money. And I, I let my mind go to the point where it became so extreme it became ridiculous. And then I could see that really this wasn't uh, any kind of humility. This was extreme egotism. As I like to say, you know, in the story of I, I wants to be the star. That's all I really cares about. It would rather be the hero or heroine, but if it can be the villain or the victim, that's fine too, as long as it gets the star. But my point here is that it was through having done meditation practice and inquiry practice that I could see that. And that started to dispel it. So there are things that you do on a spiritual path to work with dark nights. You don't just sit there and go, uh, but they aren't, they are accepting the truth of what the dark night is telling you rather than trying to cover it up, as Simone said, with lies. The other thing you do is you take up practices of morality and serving others and so forth, and that takes the attention off yourself and puts it on others. And this fosters compassion. I should say unleashes compassion because we all have that compassion in us. And you begin to see that you're not the only one suffering here, do you know? That we're all peas in the same pod. And so the attention goes off me and my suffering and my isolation and my despair and my darkness and naturally starts to flow out to other people. And then we feel this beginning of this connection, which is just a taste of the true underlying connection of everybody and all things that the mystics also testify to. So it's through practices of love and compassion and so forth that also dispels the dark night. 
And then finally, through practices of devotion, which are practices of surrender. And if you think of it in the theistic traditions, it's usually described as surrender to God, but it's not necessarily. In the Buddhist tradition, they talk about surrendering to Dharma, to the teachings. They say, uh, you turn Dharma, you put in the effort, and then Dharma turns you. It's a way of saying you you allow uh, this deeper wisdom that is not personal ego wisdom to start coming through. But you start surrendering your will to the divine will, to the unfolding of the great Tao, however you want to put it. And the more you do that, the more detached you are from your own expectations of how things should be. So you don't get so upset when they don't turn out the way you want them to be. And so again, that tends to dispel the dark night of the senses. And then, because in the dark night of the senses we've lost interest in worldly things, uh, we don't go back and try to regain our interest in worldly things, but we do find a new motivation for acting in the world, a spiritual motivation, a selfless motivation, based on that love and compassion. So we be very active in the world, but we're no longer doing it to get grasp and, and so forth and then be disappointed when we don't. We're doing it to share, to give, to help. And when we do it with that, without even any attachment to the results of that, we can't suffer. We can't suffer. The happiness is already there. We are acting out of our love and happiness rather than trying to get love and happiness by our actions. So whether people uh, accept our help or not doesn't matter. Do you see what I'm talking about? We're already beginning to discover in little ways this wisdom that the mystics talk about. In fact, we are already enlightened. We are already happy. Our problem is we keep looking away for a, a, a false happiness. And in that looking, we're distracting ourselves from that happiness and that compassion, that love that's already present. So the dark night of the senses, you see how it works in terms of switching our motivation around, we begin to do the practice, the dark night of the senses begins to dispel, and we have discovered something new, a new way of life, a spiritual way of life. Ah, then, once we do this, really, uh, then we begin to experience what John of the Cross talked about earlier, these spiritual blessings, or consolations, as they're called. We start to have experiences of clarity and bliss and love and beauty, things that a lot of people have never experienced before, before they've done spiritual practice, really, astonishingly. And this is even short of enlightenment. Here's how Rumi, the great Sufi poet, put it, and he talks about entering the world of poverty, spiritual poverty. It's when we give up our pursuit of a personal happiness in the world of things. He says, when you enter the world of poverty and practice it, God bestows on you kingdoms and worlds that you never imagined. You become ashamed of what you longed for and desired at first. You say, oh, given the existence of something like this, how could I have sought after such trifles? So, uh, we are opening up to uh, the spiritual dimensions of the cosmos that mystics testify to. But ultimately, even our practices, our spiritual practices, begin to exhaust themselves. And even these spiritual blessings we see as temporary. They come and go too. They are states of bliss, of clarity and whatnot. And we begin to recognize that in that, there's still self. It's a spiritual self now, but it's still this grasping self. And so we, then we begin to say, well, what can we do about this? And we slowly begin to realize well, there's nothing we can do about it. That's the paradox. As long as there's a self in there trying to 
uh, do something, it's selfing. And that self and selfing is the obstacle between us and this ultimate realization of our true nature, which is God, which is Buddha nature, which is the great Tao. So as long as that's there, uh, that's why we can't see. It's like the blind to the window's down. You can't see out the window as long as the blind's down. You have to lift the blind, and then you can see out the window. As long as there's self there, there's that sense of separation, isolation, <coughs> and suffering. So when this happens, and we begin to realize this, and we begin to let go even of our spiritual practices, and you can't do this prematurely, by the way. It's a big difference to decide, well, I don't have to do these spiritual practices because they don't work anyway, and to actually know for yourself that they don't work by going through them. That's a very important point to make these days. Uh, then if in the course of our spiritual practices, and this is the point of the spiritual practices, if we've burned all our worldly bridges in the fire of those practices so that there's no turning back, so it's not like you practiced, you know, for a few months and did some meditation and you didn't get enlightened, so you decided, well, maybe I should go back to law school and finish my degree. No, no. You have to burn all your bridges. Then, when you get to this place where even the spiritual practices aren't working, you're stuck. There is no going back. There's nowhere to go back to. That's when you begin to enter the dark night of the spirit. And here's what St. John, again, says uh, of its significance. Well, first he describes it. For the spiritual and sensual desires are put to sleep and mortified so that they can experience nothing, either divine or human. The affections of the soul are oppressed and constrained so that they can neither move nor find support in anything. The imagination is bound and can make no useful reflection. The memory is gone. The understanding is in darkness and unable to understand anything. And hence the will likewise is arid and constrained and all the faculties are void and useless. So this dark night of the spirit really destroys the delusion of an autonomous self. That's its function. And it wipes it out, not just as I said, not just as a thought, oh, that's true. There's the sense there is no one home to do anything. In my personal experience, it was like my life was on automatic pilot. There was just awareness and watch my body get up in the morning, and you know, no particular interest in anything, it was just happening. And it is this that opens the way to realization of the truth that you don't exist, or enlightenment sometimes called, or I call it gnosis, or the Christians call it union with God, when the self is, doesn't fall away, it seems not to exist, then your true nature reveals itself. Just like opening the curtain. You don't have to make any big effort to see the park out there. Just it's there. When we are no longer fooled, when we no longer think we are this separate little entity, we realize we are what? God, Allah, Buddha nature, consciousness itself, Brahman. All the mystical traditions have their own name for the ultimate reality. It's the ultimate reality of all things. The ultimate reality of you. And this is what can be known directly immediately. Not just, oh, that sounds like a good idea, and yes, I'm logically convinced of it. This is what ultimately dispels suffering. The suffering that comes out of delusion. This is what relieves, ultimately, depression. Because, you know, delusion is depressing. It's very depressing. (laughs) But when delusion is spelled, the depression is spelled. 
John says, When they are brought to nothing, the highest degree of humility, the spiritual union between their soul and God will be effected. This union is the most noble and sublime state attainable in this life. And this is not just in the Christian tradition. Here's uh, Hakuin, who is a Zen master. Not theistic, no word about God or anything. Very different tradition. Here's what he says. After exerting great effort, a Zen practitioner will reach a point where his normal processes of thought, perception, and consciousness, and emotion will cease. He will reach the limits of words and reason. He will resemble an utter fool as everything, including his erstwhile determination to pursue the way, disappears, and his breath itself hangs almost suspended. This is the occasion when the tortoise shell is about to crack, the phoenix about to break free of its egg. So he's just describing a dark night of the spirit in Buddhist terms. Hindu, Vali Shore, she's one of my favorites, she's great. She says, in this state there is no knowledge, no meditation, no Shiva, no Shakti. All that remains is that. Oh, Lali, you are that. Attain that. And then Rumi says simply, if you become non-existent, it will take you to true existence. So, to summarize, we could say, what is the difference between depression and the dark nights of the soul? They're, they're really in the eye of the beholder. The experience, the ideational, emotional content is the same, especially in the, uh, when we compare depression to dark night of the senses, because... Uh, it's the same thing when it's the dark night of the spirit, but if you haven't had spiritual consolations and blessings and so forth, you have nothing to miss. But it's still the same idea of helplessness, worthlessness, and so forth. And materialists see depression as a disease to be cured, and mystics see that the dark nights is a cure for the disease of delusion. And that's really how they view it, is really uh, what uh, defines the difference. And then ultimately, and I'll read you one last thing from St. John, he says, when the disease of delusion is cured, even though the dark night impoverishes and empties them of all possessions and natural affections, it does so only that they may reach out divinely to the enjoyment of all earthly and heavenly things with a general freedom of spirit in them all. For this soul is now, as it were, undergoing a cure in order that it may regain its health, its health being God himself. So, I hope that sheds some light on this relationship between dark nights and depression. Uh, was that helpful for you guys? I think you did answer the question about the relationship between depression and dark night. Because you do show that the suffering on the spiritual path has has not a meaning, but um, yes. there's a reason for it. It can lead to a maturing of the of the whole process. Suffering on a, in a mystical sense has yeah. value. It's not meaningless. Value. It's not. Yeah, it's not valueless. It has value, but it all depends on how we see it. If we learn the lessons from it, that's what gives it the value. In itself, it has no value. I'm just out there suffering. Right. But if we can learn the lessons. Uh, if we can understand why, what is the cause of suffering? That's the Buddha's second noble truth, by mm -hmm. the way. Life is suffering. Oh, that's depressing. But there's a cause of suffering. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> and 
there's an end to suffering. Oh my God, well, of course, if you could find out the cause to suffering, then you have a possibility of ending suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha set of practices that bring you to discover the cause of suffering and put an end to it. So that's the complete set of the Four Noble Truths. I believe that one of the main reasons people will resort to medications in the case of severe depressions is that there's, uh, it will get to the point where there's a high risk of suicide. And I think if, if people were able to reach the point where they could understand that the urge to kill myself is a valid thing, problem is, they're, in the attempt, what they're killing is their body and not their self. Yes. And that's something yeah. our culture doesn't get, generally. So, uh, you know, people reach for that as a solution, but it's a very misguided choice because they're not going to accomplish what they're trying by to any means yes. what they're setting out to do. Exactly right. And it's interesting because particularly the Christian descriptions of Dark Night of the Soul tend to sound more like the descriptions of depression that I was reading here, especially things like worthlessness and inappropriate guilt and things like that. Some of the other, some descriptions don't have such a guilt content. They have more of a sense of emptiness and, uh, rather than worthlessness. But this is very interesting because you never read about somebody contemplating suicide. Because they're already Christians, they're already in a sacred society, and they already have a faith in God that is established, that is deeper than all this that's going on. So, for instance, Brother Lawrence writes about his path. He was a 17th, 18th century Christian mystic, very simple man, worked as a, a cook in the monastery. You know, those of you who know about the Zen tradition, the cooks in monasteries do very well. And he uh, went through a lot of dark nights, back and forth. And then he would be, he sounded like a manic depressive there. Uh, and then he'd be uh, in a state of grace and receiving God's blessings. Then he'd fall back into this despair and worthlessness and all that. Never mentioned suicide. And he also says he never lost his faith. Now, faith is not a faith here about faith in some dogma. Do you know what I mean? It's this, he'd already experienced God in the sense that, you know, through these experiences. So he didn't have to be convinced it wasn't intellectual. But his whole path was surrender. That's very simple. Just do God's will, not my will. That was what his practice was. And he got to a point where he was in one of these dark nights, the dark night of the spirit. And he suddenly had the insight, well, wait a minute. If I'm really surrendering my will to God's will, if it's God's will that I just stay in the dark night of the spirit forever, then I'll accept that. And that, he woke up. He let go of that. And then he said, since then, he always enjoys God's grace. So this is a very important thing that I think you're mentioning. It is the suicide part of the depression that frightens us. And rightly so in our culture. Because people do, you know. They have no other context to take these things. And this is why I think it's so important, the difference having a spiritual culture and a secular culture. But... You're very right. The spiritual path is a path of suicide. But it's not the suicide of the true self, and it's not the suicide of the body. It's simply the suicide of the false self. And if we understood that, we could see that there is even a wisdom in that. Yes, this delusion is so depressing, I want to put an end to it. Right, we, that's right. There is a way you can do it. That's the message of the mystics. Yes. Um, in one of the videos here at the center, there is uh, one by Eli Jackson there. And he talks about 
as we leave our true nature when we are children, then we go through, uh, I guess, depression, fear, anger, and they get racked up, if you will. And then we go and live, then as we go back to true nature, we have to go through them. So I was wondering if that's, uh, it's kind of inherent in everyone that this depression is there in order to go to uh, our true nature. Uh, yes, I think that's true. Certainly, um, the fear, all those things that go into depression. It also, if you scratch depression, you'll find more powerful emotions that are actually being repressed under them, usually. Uh, so I think this is very true. But it is also true that how this manifests will be differently to different people. In other words, um, Ramana Maharshi's dark night of spirit and senses all rolled into one was driven by fear. That was the most predominant emotion. Mine, for instance, there was no fear. In fact, I'd never experienced quite anything like it. The best way I can describe it is just emptiness, just a sense of low indifference, you know. Couldn't care less one way or another what happened. Complete detachment and so forth. And other people have experienced, oh, like we're talking about the Christian mystics, often experience a lot of guilt here, this sense of wretchedness and being a sinner, because that's in part of their tradition. So, so I agree with you completely in what Jackson Bear said, except that I just think we have to be careful that in different cultures, different times and places, and different individuals, it may have a different kind of manifestation going back through that. I don't know if this is in Islam, but in Christianity and Judaism, it's contained in the motif of the myth of uh, the angel with a flaming sword who guards the gates of paradise. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of paradise, God sets up an angel with a flaming sword. To get back into paradise, you have to pass by the angel with a flaming sword. The angel with a flaming sword is the angel who kills you, because that's the only way you get back to paradise. It's the same thing in the Hindu tradition of these images of Kali, for instance, with her, with her scimitar, you know, she cuts off the heads of the ego and stuff. And of course, we know this somewhere deep down, so that arouses a little, you know, consternation, to say the least. Yes? I guess uh, it's a similar kind of question, but sort of the opposite in that for different people, everyone's path is going to be different and they're all going to experience different things. So, for example, wouldn't it be possible that someone gets to the point where they have this dark night of senses, but, I mean, it's not a dark night to them because they're just like, oh, I just don't have any interest in those things, you know, I'm interested in my spiritual practices. And there's no depression about it at all. Right? That certainly could be the case. And even the dark night of the spirit, Rumi has a wonderful line. Uh, he said, uh, if you can become completely content in a moment of affliction, the doors to paradise fly open. Because what is complete contentment? It means you don't want anything. There's no movement. There's no movement of grasping or pushing away. There's no movement of will. There's no movement of attention to distraction. You see what I mean? So if you are totally and completely content, that is like a, serves the same purpose as the dark night of, a, of the spirit. It brings everything to a halt. That's really what's happening here. But in my experience, just reading through biographies and so forth, that's less common. Most people have a more difficult time, you know. It's like, uh, you know, there are some women who have natural childbirth and it's just total joy. You know, most women have a more difficult time. Although at the end, it's always, almost always joyful. So I've been told. I have to say like the Buddha said. That's I've been told. And that's speaking for personal experience. 
Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning here to a close? It's getting a little hot in here, and it's getting on a little bit. And don't forget the kittens. Those of you who want to open your hearts and make room in your house for abandoned beings. <laughs>